Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your words to us this morning through your son Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, Father, uh, we're just excited to begin uh, the next uh, seven or so weeks in this, uh, this passage from uh, your Son, really from you. We just pray this morning as we hear this, these words that Jesus speaks about blessing, um, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, um, that we, w- we might see what he's saying um, again, and maybe for the very first time, and that we would hear and respond to the call to the good life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As a teenager, uh, I loved exotic cars. The truth is I still love exotic cars. Um, In the digital age, this might seem a little bit uh, quaint and old-timey to you, but I had posters of exotic cars on my walls and in, in my bedroom. Um, the silver Porsche, Porsche 959, the red Ferrari F40, the white Lamborghini Countach, these all had a position of prominence on the walls in my bedroom. But my favorite poster was one of a mansion on a cliff overlooking the ocean, and in the driveway to this mansion were all of these cars parked, and it said at the bottom, ah, the good life. Exactly. I think uh, at the time I might have thought that was true. Praise God, I'm due to him. I'm a little wiser than that now. But I think it begs the question, what makes the good life? Whether or not we realize it, we are always trying to answer that question. What is the good life? How can I be a good person? What is the virtuous life? In Jesus', Jesus day, the surrounding Greek and Roman cultures said that, that courage and wisdom and temperance And justice led to a virtuous and good life. And that makes sense. I mean, those are all kind of noble things, but there's some things that are missing there. Well, what about today? What is the good life today? Well, you must be, in order to have the good life, in order to be a virtuous person, you must be authentic. You do you. No matter what others say, even common sense. You must celebrate, not just accept And tolerate, you must celebrate lifestyles that do do not lead 
to flourishing. That's what it means to be a virtuous person. If you're a, I'm going to pick, off, pick on some generations here. If you're a baby boomer, you acquire things. It's your stuff that makes your life good. If you're a, a, a millennial, you do things. It's your experiences that make your life good. And if you're Gen Z, it's your online profile that makes your life good. That makes you happy and blessed. But when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, what we find are some surprising things. Things that Jesus says that are really quite different from what we're told about the good life. Even back in Greco-Roman culture up to today. The things that Jesus has to say in these next 110 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. The central message, the key question that he is answering is this. What is the good life? What is kingdom life? Where is blessing found? Where is joy found? How do we experience shalom? And for those that haven't heard, shalom is just the Hebrew word for human flourishing. How do we flourish as human beings? What does it mean to be whole? Jesus said, I came to give them life and they'll give it abundantly. What is the abundant life? That's what the Sermon on the Mount answers. Jesus breaks through the mist and fog of fallen minds and moral consciousness and shines a light on what is genuine happiness. What is flourishing and what is the kingdom life? That's what it's all about. Jesus, what he says here, is very similar to much of the wisdom literature that we find in the Old Testament. Think of Psalm 1, right? Where the psalmist, which is really sort of an introduction to the entire book of Psalms, and the psalmist says, Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but what? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so, with that sort of wisdom literature, we find some of that here in uh, that, that, those themes of kind of wisdom in the Sermon on the Mount, but that's not it. What Jesus is also answering is, what is the end of your life? What is the goal of your life? Where are you taking things? The Greeks talked about this. They, they had a word for this that I won't even try to pronounce. But the idea was just that, uh, where is the end? Where are you going toward? And that's also what the Sermon on the Mount answers. Jonathan Pennington writes, True human flourishing is only available through communion with the Father God, through his revealed Son, Jesus, as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. This flourishing is only experienced through faithful, heart-deep, whole-person discipleship. Following Jesus' teachings and life, which situates the disciple into God's community or kingdom. As followers of Jesus journey through their lives, they will experience suffering in this world, which in God's providence is in fact a means to true flourishing even now. So on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will show us that kingdom life begins here in the Beatitudes with blessing. And then it moves on, blessing really in surprising ways, and then proceeds to influence the world in surprising ways. So that's kind of, I just wanted to tee us up a little bit as we spend, I think I'm, I'm week one, there's six more weeks after this where we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and I wanted to just sort of tee us up for a moment. What, what are we doing here? What's the big idea around the Sermon on the Mount? But as we dive into today's passage in these first 16 verses, I want to talk about, we're going to talk about what 
the Beatitudes are. And what is the, the surprise of this blessing and the surprise of, of um, the influence that we have and really the surprise of Jesus' call upon our lives. So the first point, I guess the second point in your altitude or uh, your uh, outline rather, the Beatitudes, the surprising blessing. Before we get into each Beatitude, I just want to answer a couple questions. First, what is a Beatitude? And then the second question is this. Are we to look at these as a single unit of thought, or are these kind of eight individual sort of wisdom sayings that you might find in the Proverbs, for example? Well, first, let's look at what a beatitude is. Beatitude is really just Latin for blessing, and a direct translation of blessing is happiness. But happiness doesn't really capture what Jesus is talking about here. Happiness, as you know, is really a circumstantial kind of thing. Some things, you might be happy one, uh, one moment, you might be unhappy the next. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's, he's talking about an abiding blessing, a blessing that lasts. He's, some, he's pointing to something much more than that. And here's what's interesting about the Beatitudes. I thought it was interesting as I look more closely. There are no commands here. As you see and read through, you're actually not going to see Jesus say, do this, don't do that. What you are going to see Jesus say is, when you are like this, you receive this. He's talking about a state of blessing with the Beatitudes, not a to-do list. So just keep that in mind as we go. And then second, how should we view these eight blessings? Again, is this a single unit of thought, or are they eight individual sort of standalone proverbial sayings of Jesus? And I think the answer, and across, I, I don't know how many different resources I looked at, um, and there are, a, uh, there are many uh, as it relates to this particular text, as you probably are not surprised to hear. Um, but all of them agreed that this is really a unit. And, and, and the scholars really, as we've progressed through time, seem to agree that that's really even a progression of thought through the, these eight Beatitudes. And so I'm going to try to, to kind of lay that out for you here this morning. All right, so then, how is one blessed? What, how, what does a life of blessing look like? And then I've kind of taken these, these eight blessings and separated them into blessings of need and blessings of discipleship. The first three are blessings of need, and the last five are blessings of discipleship. So let's look at the first blessing of need. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but as I've, I've, as I've aged, I've found that um, I hurt a lot more. And in fact, I hurt sometimes when, in places that when I went to bed the night before, didn't hurt. And when I wake up, somehow I've hurt myself in my sleep. It's, uh, it's not a good feature. I mean, I'm appreciated. I think I'm getting a little wiser, but the whole pain thing is not great. But to be poor in spirit is to be acutely aware of your spiritual need. When your body hurts, you know it. Through your pain, your body's making you aware that something's not right. The poor in spirit are acutely aware that something is not right in their hearts. And what is not right is sin. In each of our hearts, we have this idea that we can do it ourselves. I mean, sure, God can help us Maybe we need a little bit of help. Maybe we need a lot of help. But we can help ourselves quite a bit as well. In some ways, that's kind of the heart uh, 
of sin. The spiritually poor, though, they understand that they cannot help themselves. They're like the swimmer who's caught in the riptide. And they've been fighting against the riptide, right? Going against it instead of swimming perpendicular to it. And they're coming to the end of their energy. And they're realizing if somebody doesn't come to save them, they will drown. There's nothing that they can do for themselves at that point. The spiritually poor know that without God's saving life, they will die for good. Now, there's a lot of ways to talk about the gospel. I mean, there are deeply theological ways like substitutionary atonement um, to maybe the more folksy ways like saying like, you know, I invited Jesus into my heart. But no matter how you formulate the gospel, the beginning of the gospel is here, realizing your spiritual bankruptcy, realizing that you cannot do it on your own. And it leads to saying, I can't do this. I'm unable to be who I know that I should be. I need you, Jesus. I need all of you, Jesus. Think about the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, if you recall, he went to his father. I think I may have used this the last sermon, but it applies to so many things. The prodigal son went to his father and said, hey, I'll take my inheritance now, which is, oh, by the way, incredibly offensive to do. Can you imagine going to your parents and saying, I'll just go ahead and if you could just write that check, that'd be just really great. Um, so he goes to his dad, give me my inheritance, and he goes off to a, a foreign country and he squanders it on reckless living, is what the scriptures say. But here's what's really interesting. And I'll just quote directly from the scriptures, Luke 15, 14. Listen to what Jesus says in this parable. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He began to be in need. That was really the beginning of his return to the Father. And it's no different for us. The beginning of kingdom life, the beginning of wise living, the beginning of flourishing actually begins with admitting your need for God, his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace, his love, his kindness. That's the beginning of kingdom life. And what is the reward? Nothing less than the kingdom of heaven. And that's another way. So I think, you know, Jesus, um, last week we heard in, uh, from, from Lars in uh, Matthew chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom, what are we talking about? We're talking about the gospel. And all of the things that come with becoming a believer, a follower of Jesus, and that is a full inheritance in the kingdom alongside of him and, 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 and adopted as well into his family. So, so seeing and admitting your spiritual need, and if you'll allow me a little bit of Latin, is the sine qua non. It's the without which there is nothing. If you don't get this first, it doesn't matter how merciful you are, how much you mourn, or how much peace you make. You could be the kindest person to walk the face of the earth since Jesus, but if you haven't come to grips with your need to make peace with God first, it's all rubbish. But like the prodigal, the prodigal son's father, 
When you acknowledge your need, he welcomes you home and he gives you his kingdom. That's the first beatitude of need. The second is, of course, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, who are the mourners? The mourners aren't sad people. There's nothing particularly noble or kingdom-worthy about being depressed. These people are mourning sin, starting with their own sin. And it's interesting, I think in our current cultural moment, we've been told that feeling good about ourselves is critical to our well-being. It's paramount, okay, to, to being a whole person. You've got to feel good about yourself. That we should banish negative feelings and focus on the positive. So to me, it's really surprising. And I just want to say real quick, one of the reasons I settled on this idea of surprising, I know a lot of you, and I know myself as well, and I know many of you are super familiar with this passage of Scripture. Some of you probably have it, like, memorized, right? Or are trying to memorize it with, with, a, with a group of us. And it would be really easy to just come along and say, yeah, of course, blessed are those, of course, blessed are those who are mourned. Of course, the spiritually needy are blessed. That's not an of course, people. That's not an automatic. Like, that's so contrary to what we see in the rest of the world around us. And I think this cultural moment says it as well. So it's surprising to me that Jesus says the exact opposite. He says, blessed are those who mourn over their sin. But how is that helpful? How is it helpful to mourn for your sin? I think it's a little bit like when you reach your teens. Or, or maybe you're kind of a, an early um, adult, early 20s, and you're, you're having a really good burger. Just stay with me. You're, ha- you're having a really good burger. You've probably had a good burger before, but this is the first time when you're eating this burger and you say, I can't believe that for all those years I thought McDonald's was good. Not to, not to bring our Lord down to our base level, but, but in a way, there's a, there is a similar sense in which we have seen God and experienced the real thing, the goodness of God, his holiness, experienced his forgiveness and grace and mercy that we mourn over our sin. How could I have done those things when he loves me so much? And we mourn our ongoing struggle with sin. That too often our affections, the things that we love, take a higher priority than he does. I think the word that we're talking about here, folks, is repentance. We're talking about repentance. The Puritans used to pray. This is odd. The the Puritans used to pray for repentance. When's the last time you prayed for repentance? They called it the gift of tears. Oswald Chambers puts it this way, the surest sign that God is at work in your life is when you say, I have sinned, and mean it. And that's why Jesus says they are blessed. God has given mourners the gift of repentance. And I know we talk about repentance from time to time from this pulpit. I think Lars even just talked about it last week. And there's a lot of ways to think about repentance. But if I could just give you maybe some words around repentance that I think capture really the heart of repentance. I'm sorry. I love you. I'm coming home. That's the heart of repentance. 
I'm sorry, Father. I love you. I'm coming home. Because there's nothing else I can do. Just like the prodigal son. I need you. Mourning over sin isn't contained only to personal sin. It extends to sin in other lives and the effects of sin generally. We could go on. You'll find, I think, one of the things that I struggled with preparing for this morning was just, there's a lot of material to cover. Um, Each one of these could have been its own sermon easily. Um, So I'm not going to be able to say all the things that I would have liked to say. As it is, I'll work really hard to get you out of here on time. Um, I I don't want a Lord of the Flies situation in the nursery if I overrun. So we're going to protect against that. But just to say that we mourn over our sin, but we also mourn over the effects of sin. I mean, how many broken relationships? How many sicknesses? How much suffering? Right? Because of sin. And we mourn over that. But there's blessing. It's weird. There's blessing in that though, right? One of the sweetest promises in all of scriptures from Revelation 21.4. There, at the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, God, I, I think he shouts this. He shouts from heaven. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Right? Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the last of our beatitudes or blessings of need. First, what, when we think about meekness, we should probably talk about what it's not. It's not weakness. It's not timidity. It's not fearfulness. I think too often we confuse meekness with weakness, and they're not the same thing. Jesus was the meekest man to walk the face of the earth, and we know he wasn't weak. So they're not the same thing. So what is it? When we look across Scripture, at where this word is used other places in Scripture, what we find is it's often translated gentleness and humility. When Jesus says he's gentle and lowly, he actually uses the same word. I like to think of it as as power under control. There's a a phrase kind of going around right now culturally where uh, where somebody will say, oh, he flexed on you or she flexed on her, meaning like they exercised their authority. They exercised their power. They kind of bowed up. They flexed. Meekness is the anti-flex. The meek are those that overcome evil, not with power, but with patience. I got this from Spurgeon. He shared this analogy. Think of the blacksmith's hammer and the anvil, okay? So the anvil receives blow after blow after blow. But it is the hammer that will wear out long before the anvil. And in the same way, the disciple of Jesus should be meek primarily in two ways. And I would say those two ways are vertically and horizontally. Meekness first starts first with the Lord, it's submission to his will as revealed in the Bible. Um, Pink, A.W. Pink says it this way. It is that quality of spirit that is found in one who has been schooled, I love this, schooled to mildness. Not schooled in mildness, like, oh, this is what mildness is like, but schooled, now they are mild because they've been schooled in it by discipline and suffering and brought into sweet resignation to the will of God. Meekness should also, as I said, show up in our horizontal relationships with one another. Martin Luther tells a story about two mountain goats who met each other on a narrow ledge, just wide enough for one of the two animals to pass 
the other. On the left was a a sheer cliff, and on the right, a, a steep wall. The two were facing each other, and it was impossible to turn or to back up. So how did they solve their dilemma? Well, if they had been people, they would have started butting each other until they plunged into the chasm together. But according to Luther, the goats had more sense than that. One of them lay down on the trail and let the other literally walk over him, and both were safe. I think that's a picture of what meekness looks like. So the blessing for the meek is that they will inherit the earth. Jesus is quoting Psalm 37:11, where the psalmist writes, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Of course, Jesus is referring here to the new heaven and the new earth that God will bring at the end of this age, which the meek in Christ will inherit as co-heirs with him. So again, we've kind of touched on these first three Beatitudes, the Beatitudes of need. Um, And I would say these are kind of more inward-focused blessings. But hopefully you've seen a bit of a progression here, right? We started with understanding our spiritual need before God. And then we've confessed through repentance. We've mourned over our sin before him. And now we're submitting to his will. In all cases, really, we need him. That brings us now to kingdom action or the blessing of discipleship. And the the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Have you ever fasted? If you ever have, you you get really hungry. (laughs) It actually, my stomach at least starts to speak to me in tongues. It's telling me to go eat. And I say, we can't, not yet. But, but those who know their need, who mourn their sin, and who submit to, submit to Jesus' yoke in meekness, they also hunger and thirst to be like him, as if they haven't eaten for days. Remember, this is a state. This is not necessarily something you're doing, but just who you are. You are hungering and thirsting for Jesus. Now, what's interesting is, I think, in our circles, and the influences and so forth of the church from which we come, it would be easy for us to think, oh, this is the righteousness of justification. This is Romans 3. No. This is about pursuing holiness. This is about pursuing right living before God. This is how you live righteousness. This is your character righteousness. This is about holiness. I think sometimes in our church, in our our vein, if you will, of Christianity, we get a little angsty about talking about personal righteousness, right, about holiness. We get super nervous about it because we don't want anyone to think that they can earn God's approval through their righteousness. But we do that at the risk of underemphasizing the importance of holy living. And frankly, I think we do that at the risk of ignoring the clear teaching of Scripture, So this is a call to holy living. This is a call to enjoy that communion and that fellowship with Jesus by becoming more and more like him. And so from there, we progress to the fifth beatitude, mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If grace is getting what you don't deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. 
A good friend of mine shared a story about how he was about to spank his son. His son at the time was a toddler, like two or three. Spank his son for some disobedience, and his son looked up at him with these big eyes, with the moistening tears in them, and, and he said in a soft, super cute, toddler voice, Daddy, show me mercy. <laughs> so he had learned the concept of mercy, and needless to say, it worked. The boy avoided that spanking. But mercy is more than that. It is compassion for the hurting and the destitute. That's why we call the ministry to those in need mercy ministry. So mercy is both help for the hurting and withholding of just punishment. So how do we show it? Well, that's a huge question (laughs) and one that deserves quite a bit more time than we have right here. But there's a place that we can do it day by day, even minute by minute, and that's in forgiving others. That's how we can show mercy. We can show mercy by forgiving others. Forgiving others who have wronged you is the simplest and surest way to be merciful. From the guy that cut you off on 470 to the fellow church member who let you down, there are many, many opportunities to forgive I would say this is especially true for those of us who are prideful, who anger easily, who are quick to take offense. This is a meaningful and significant challenge. And if, by the way, if you don't think that you fit one of those categories of being prideful, angry, and easy to take offense, come see me. You do. We, and I say we on purpose, okay, we must be super vigilant to keep accounts short, to not hold grudges, to remain temperate in the face of perceived and real wrongs. So if you find yourself saying, hey, come on, there's no need to apologize. I'd rather hold a grudge. If that's you, then this is for you. Forgiveness shows up. Here's how important forgiveness is before we move on. It shows up twice more on this Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to see it here later in chapter 5. Hey, if you're bringing your gift to the altar and somebody's got something against you, what are you supposed to do? Leave it at the altar. Go and be reconciled. Go get forgiveness. And then in the Lord's Prayer, what does he say? Forgive us our debts is what? We forgive our debtors. Here's what's really interesting. Right after that, right after his uh, Lord's Prayer, in chapter 6 he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's how important forgiveness is to our Father. And where does does that come from? Where is the fuel? Well, of course, it's the cross, the cross of Christ. In fact, I would say if you're unable to forgive others, it might suggest that you don't really understand what happened at the cross. You don't really understand what Jesus has done for you. You've not really incorporated that into your life. So let's move on there. So just just from that, they they shall receive mercy is, of course, the gift there, which is a beautiful thing. We all want to receive mercy. Um, From mercy, let's move on to uh, purity in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity is the removal of impurities and the cleansing 
from filth and dirt. So that's what purity is. And the heart, of course, is the will. The heart is the, uh, um, Paul Tripp said it this way, and it's stuck with me for a long time. The heart is the causal core of our being. It's what causes us to do things. It's our motivation, okay? So when you put those two things together, purity and heart, we get someone who is single-minded, who has undivided affections. Pink says it this way, as a quality of Christian character, we would define it as godly simplicity. It's the opposite of subtlety and duplicity. Genuine Christianity lies aside not only malice, but guile and hypocrisy also. So it's not enough what he's saying there. It's not enough to just not be mean, but you've also got to lay aside guile and hypocrisy. It is not enough to be pure in words and in outward deportment. Purity of desires, motives, and intents is what should and does in the main characterize the child of God. Here then is a most important test for every professing Christian to apply to himself. Are my affections set upon things of above? Are my motives pure? Why do I assemble with the Lord's people? Is it to be seen of men? Or is it to meet with the Lord and to enjoy sweet communion with him and his people? End quote. Jesus talks about this exact idea later in his Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so the blessing then for those who are pure in heart, who have undivided affections, is that they will see God. I remember when I first got my glasses, it was in um, seventh or, or eighth grade, On the drive home, I could see individual leaves on the trees for the first time. Anybody that's gotten glasses can, can, uh, you know, probably has a very similar experience. There was detail and depth and everything around me that I had been missing. I think that's kind of like those continually pursuing holiness and purity in heart. They receive the gift of an ever clearer vision of God and and who he's like and what he's like and how he loves them. They see him in his awful and terrifying holiness, but also his goodness and his gentleness, his patience, his mercy, his kindness, his love. And in doing so, they are drawn into a deeper relationship with him. So from purity, then we grow into peacemaking. Again, we continue this progression. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace is Near and dear to my heart, I think any parent with kids at home would also say the same thing. We love peace at home, for sure. But thankfully, the peace which Jesus calls us to make is much deeper than that. And frankly, it's much, much more lasting than that. Peace is more than just calm and ease and cooperation. It's that, but more importantly, it's reconciliation. And reconciliation involves restoration. Well, so how do we know that? How do we know that that's the peacemaking that Jesus is talking about here? Well, we start with him. He's the chief peacemaker. I mean, in some ways, we could go through each one of these and say, yeah, Jesus lived this. Jesus was this. Jesus did this for each one of these. Peacemaker, it might be easier to see than some of the others. The peace that he offers is not superficial, happy feelings of calm and ease. Jesus' peace isn't about self-fulfillment or feeling good or some kind of Zen, it goes to the very core 
of our being, very, very much who we are. Back to this idea of, of human flourishing, of living the good life. And it meets us at our point of greatest need, the peace that he offers. And that is forgiveness of sin. But not only that, it's full-blown reconciliation and restoration. And I think the word we used earlier this morning, redemption. Redeemed. Made whole again through Jesus. So peace begins in the vertical, similar like we talked about um, with meekness. And then it moves to the horizontal. It goes outward from there. First in the church and then the church to the world. And in the church, we are to seek and make peace within the family of God. I think the, the surprising good life, the kingdom life, is marked by a laying down of our rights. I think keep coming back to this, right? Meekness, mercy, here again in peacemaking. It's really interesting, I think. It's a meekness to pursue one's own way and instead seek peace. And I'm reminded of King David, uh, one of the sermons I was, had the privilege to preach on the life of David. Um, he uh, was when there was a divided kingdom and Ishbosheth was in the north and Ishbosheth had a, a general named Abner. And Abner secretly came to David and was trying to, to kind of bring the kingdoms back together. And David really had every right to basically had, have Abner killed because Abner really should have gone with David from the very beginning. Abner knew that David was the rightful king of the entire kingdom, and yet he rebelled against him and went with Ishbosheth. So David had every right to off this guy, but instead he said, okay, come to my table. Let's talk about peace. Why did David do that? Because to him, his personal rights didn't matter as much as peace in the kingdom, reuniting the kingdom. That's what peacemaking looks like. It's painful. It was a sacrifice for David to do that. But most importantly, it's remembering, I think, most importantly, it's remembering that you are not your own. God bought you with a price, his son's death, and now you are his bond, his bond servant. His way comes first. So we've seen now, when we've made peace with God and, and, and in the church, we're ready to encourage peace between God and people outside of the church. I think what's by sharing the gospel primarily, but, but what's really interesting is that as we move out into the world to make peace through talking to people about kingdom life and Jesus, invariably we come up against resistance. And this is where we find ourselves at the last beatitude, and it really is a beatitude of discipleship. Verses 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This kind of persecution is as old as Cain and Abel, right? Cain murdered Abel because Abel's worship was true. He gave to God from a pure heart. And the world doesn't like who we are or what we are doing or what we say because they're convicted by it, Right? As Romans says, they want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so we're persecuted for righteousness sake. Talk about a surprising blessing. Who would have thought that persecution is a state of being blessed? You know, my childhood poster of the good life <laughs> didn't have anything about this on it. But this is what the good life in the kingdom looks like. It's actually a part of our flourishing when 5th century Bishop of Constantinople, Chrysostom, was driven from the city into exile, he wrote a friend. 
When I was driven from the city, I felt no anxiety, but said to myself, if the empress wishes to banish me, let her do so. The earth is the Lord's. If she wants me to have me sawn asunder, I have Isaiah as an example. If she wants me to be drowned in the ocean, I think of Jonah. If I'm to be thrown into the fire, the three men in the furnace suffer the same. If cast before wild beasts, I remember Daniel in the lion's den. If she wants me to be stoned, I have before me Stephen, the first martyr. If she demands my head, let her do so. John the Baptist shines before me. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I leave this world. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, because your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's interesting. Jesus doesn't mention just a heavenly reward for it. He doesn't mention a heavenly reward for any other beatitude. Only this one. But there's even a reward now, knowing that you are walking in your master's footsteps, right? No servant is greater than his master. And the blessing is the confirmation that yours is the kingdom of heaven, which is really a nice bookend to those who are poor in spirit who are also receiving the kingdom of heaven. And that brings us to the end of the blessings. I mean, really, what a delight. What a delight these have been. And so before we wrap up, let's just look at the surprising influence that the good life brings. Matthew verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Time doesn't really allow us to get too deep into this, but if I could just sum up these two concepts here of salt and light. Salt being a preservative, light being something that provides illumination to the dark. That one word would be influence. And there really is surprising influence for those who are citizens of the kingdom, those who are pursuing the good life in Jesus. There's surprising influence all around us. Um, In some ways, we are a reflection like the moon reflects the sun. But in other ways, we actually have that light emanating directly from us. Right? Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so... We have some of that light as well. And the influence that we have around others is, I think, very surprising. The one that often comes to my mind when I think about this is William Wilberforce, who was the one who led the the charge to free, to to, um, outlaw slavery in the, the British kingdom. That's the kind of influence that is perhaps surprising uh, to some. And in a lot of ways, very unique to the kingdom of God and to Christianity. That brings us to, to the last point here, a surprising call. So the thing with the Sermon on the Mount it, it, is that it is an already not yet sermon. You've already been hearing this concept in the previous couple of weeks. A lot of this book of Matthew is about the inauguration of God's kingdom here and now, but it's not coming um, in its completion until later. So that's kind of where we get this already not yet concept And so that's very much what Jesus is saying. Jesus preaches a standard for the good life, right? And we'll see. So these are the blessings. It's going to get harder. 
in the following weeks. Like, it's going to get a lot harder. And so some people have said when they read it, they're like, oh, that can't be for today. This standard is way too high. This has to be only talking about some future time. Wrong. It's talking about today. This is for now. This is the already. Now, we won't be able to do it perfectly, right? We won't be able to do it perfectly, but it does set the standard for what we're aiming for. We can partake. Here's the, here's the thing. We can partake in the, really the eternal life in God even now. So John 17, 3 says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is more than just head knowledge. This is the intimate, personal knowledge of Jesus himself. Knowledge empowered by the Holy Spirit and knowledge that is never complete, however, or final. It's always growing, always, always evolving. As we step back and think about these states of blessing, we find one common thread, and that is communion with God through Jesus Christ, powered by his Spirit. And so then ultimately, if we think about what is the thing that ties all of these things together, these states of blessing, what brings them all together is this. The good life is life with Jesus. John 1.4 says this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And I love what Dallas Willard wrote. Our life, it turns out, is not destroyed by God's life, but is fulfilled in it and in it alone. So if you're here today and you want to know what the good life is all about, this is where it starts. It starts with Jesus Christ. And it starts with that beatitude of spiritual need, of recognizing that you need him and you can't do it on your own. And I would love to talk with you if that's who you are this morning. And for the rest of us, while there are no commands here, I can't imagine a higher and more worthy call for our lives than what Jesus has set before us this morning. Stand with me and pray. God, we thank you for this sweet kingdom life that you have offered us in your son, Jesus. Lord, you never said that it would be easy. In fact, you've made it quite clear it's going to be hard, and it is hard. And there are moments even now of suffering when it's hard to imagine, um, hard to imagine pursuing you, walking with you in this way. And yet, Lord, we know that's what we need, even maybe mostly when we're suffering, is that we need to follow harder after you. Help us to do that, God. Help us to to realize and, and enjoy these states of blessing, these beatitudes that you've laid before us, Lord. We're so thankful um, for this, this wonderful um, vision, this wonderful reality of being citizens in your kingdom and this call to the good life. We thank you for Jesus, for his blood, for the reconciliation and peace that we have with him. And we ask your blessing now and this day and this week. In his name we pray, amen.